Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. I'm Mark Danis, and I have here in the studio with me, as always, Francis Harry. How are you, Francis? I'm so full of joy. <laughs> well, we have a lot to be joyful about today. We have actually um, a dual celebration, if you will. We're in the middle of a series that we are doing on St. Teresa of the Andes, and this is also a special feast day for those of us in Carmel. Francis, you want to tell us whose feast day it is? Yes, it is St. Albert of Jerusalem, the bishop and lawgiver of Carmel, where we get our rule. He is the one who authored the rule for the original Carmelites living, in fact, in the Holy Land on Mount Carmel. Uh, who went to Albert and uh, asked him if he would give them a rule, um, guidance and direction uh, for how they were to begin to conduct themselves in community. And, of course, that is the rule that uh, that we have today, carried on uh, in addition to a number of constitutions and other guidance, of course. But uh, the original rule is still in place. And uh, thankfully, our mother, our mother, uh, Teresa uh, of Avila, made sure that we reached back and uh, recaptured the spirit of that rule in the reform of the order which led to the establishment of the uh, discalced form of the uh, of the order that we enjoy in our members of today. And speaking of going back to the primitive roots, tonight we have a double portion. Not only are we talking about this feast day of St. Albert of Jerusalem, but guess what else? Uh, I don't know. It's a trick question. You talk about <laughs> Robert no, Pellerin. We're going to have our second series oh, uh, yeah. program on St. Teresa of the Andes. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, and well, we are. And we're going to talk uh, tonight. Uh, last week, of course, <clears throat> we uh, did a, um, an initial series, as we often do when we introduce a new saint, on her life. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the influence of that life on the church. So let us begin with prayer, as we do each week, and we should begin every activity, of course, with prayer. Francis, would you lead us in prayer, please? Well, it's interesting that you brought out her influence on the church, because the prayer that I selected for for tonight is the prayer of the Church of Chile to Teresa of the Andes. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Teresa of the Andes, who by the hand of Mary was changed into a young girl in love for Jesus Christ. You are a model of holiness and a way of perfection for the church. You knew how to laugh, to love, to play, and to serve. You were strong to bear suffering and generous to love. You knew how to contemplate God in the simple things of life. Show us the love of the Father to live friendship in joy and tenderness in the family. Help the weak and the sorrowful that the Holy Spirit may encourage them in hope. Intercede for us and ask for Chile, love and peace. St. Teresa of the Andes, predilected daughter of the Chilean church, religious of Carmel, friend of young people, servant of the poor, pray for us every day. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. Uh, And as long as we've started with her prayer, um, I want us to reflect just a little bit from uh, uh, the uh, text that we're working from. And again, for a reminder, the text we're reading from mostly is God, the joy of my life, St. Teresa of the Andes. 
And uh, this can be gotten actually through uh, a number of Catholic bookstores or online. Um, the publishing house, though, is... The Theresian Charism Press in Hubertus, Wisconsin. Right. Somewhat more challenging to find some of these texts, but it is available uh, online. In fact, that's uh, where I was able to get mine. Actually, I think I got mine in the local Catholic bookstore, but some of the other texts I got online. So and This is Holy Hill, it, yes. you know, where our mm-hmm. friars are at. So that's the, right. that's the printing press we're talking of. So from that text, uh, Francis, you pointed this out to me. We didn't actually finish all of the biographical sketch when we started talking about her in our last program. And I did want to cover a couple of things um, about both her prayer life, which I'd like you to introduce for us. And also we should cover her passing because it leads us into the next phase. And I I won't uh, tip my hat here too much, but um, let's just uh, start with an understanding of her prayer life, and uh, the significance of martyrdom to her vocation. What is it she says about her prayer life? Well, she's describing her habitual state of prayer, and she wrote, My prayer consists almost always of an intimate conversation with our Lord. Of course, we know she got that from St. Teresa of Avila, right? I imagine that I am like Magdalene at his feet, listening to him, and he tells me what I must do to please him. Sometimes I am very recollected in prayer and have been completely absorbed, contemplating the infinite perfections of God, above all, those that are manifested in the mystery of the Incarnation. Yeah, and that's an important theme, of course, in uh, many of the saints' writings, certainly in the Saints of Carmel, is this idea of the Incarnation, um, Christ entering into time and entering into our existence And, of course, what we're uh, called to do is to reincarnate. That's a dangerous word, sometimes misinterpreted. But we are to be that incarnation of Christ in the world where we happen to find ourselves and in history where we happen to find ourselves. Just like the Blessed Mother, we are responsible for uh, bringing Christ into the world. This is another understanding of the incarnation. Um, we are to live Christ's life in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And in so doing, the body of Christ uh, is projected into our into our very existence and into the, the world and affecting the ones around us. And we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, impactful Teresa of Andes was on her own family. Uh, and this is another example of that. I just wanted to touch on one other theme, though, that she talks about before we speak about her passing, and this is this idea of martyrdom. Um, And she writes in her um, notes, I can also be a martyr in Carmel, dying to self at every instant. That is the vocation of a Carmelite, to be a pure host who constantly offers herself to God for the sinful world. How beautiful is our vocation. We are redeemers in union with our Lord. We are hosts where Jesus dwells, in whom he lives, prays, and sacrifices himself for this sinful world. We are co-redeemers, just like our Blessed Mother, of the world. But the redemption of souls is not accomplished without the cross. My idea of being a Carmelite is to be a victim, constantly immolated for souls. What a powerful message from a girl who's not yet 20 years of age, of course. Teenager. Uh, This was written even before that. But she clearly grasps the significance of the incarnation, 
how we are to be another Christ to those around us, and how every moment of our life presents that opportunity for the practice of martyrdom, not in the physical sense, maybe, although certainly for some, but in the sense that we give up our own will. This is really the the call of martyrdom, is to give up our own will, to allow the Lord's will to dwell and to affect uh, those around us through through his guidance and direction. Uh, and in many sense, uh, ma- many uh, cases, this is a more challenging uh, call than, than actual martyrdom. Well, one of the things I picked up on from that passage was how she was uh, seeing herself to be a pure host. And quite frankly, the first time I saw a holy card of St. Teresa the Andes on the back, it talks about her wanting to be emulated as a pure host. And I had never seen that anywhere else. And so this was like new for me. And I just really pondered that and really took that to heart and how beautiful that is. So, you know, if you want to uh, read more, her letters and her diary do go into that theme a little bit more in depth. And it's very beautiful. Yeah, there's a whole theology around our becoming hosts. You know, we are the wheat, which is harvested. Uh, we are crushed, right, as we prepare the uh, the harvest to um, be turned into something more malleable in the form of dough, uh, and then we're placed into the oven, right? This is the oven of our sanctification. That's the suffering, right? Yes, absolutely. When the heat's uh, on, maybe we become divine f- flames, you know, yeah. <laughs> flames of love, <laughs> like that. <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, we, we become food for the world. We ourselves become food for the world, and this is uh, the idea, again, of the Incarnation, and she seems to grasp this so uh, precisely, and, and, and she writes about it so well. I do want to talk about the last, um, really the last week of her life during Holy Week, 1920. Um, it's also during this week that she discovers, uh, or just prior to that, of course, she discovers that she has typhus. Uh, typhus, of course, at that time uh, was a very serious condition and not one that often uh, its victim would survive. So um, she deteriorates very quickly in the Carmel, uh, and yeah, ahead, there was like about a, a there was about a month there where yeah. she just hid her suffering, yeah, um, as and offered it up as a, an act of mortification, she and knew. then she broke out with that fever, and then it was like way way into the disease. It was too far along, right? She knew something was wrong, and she may at some point have discerned what her condition actually was. But you're right; she stayed very quiet about it. Um, again, uh, her manifestation of the martyrdom that she had accepted, she would accept the Lord's will no matter what, and she suffered a great deal in the last uh, last uh, month of her life. Uh, she was allowed to make her profession to the Carmelite order, though. It's a very special story. Right. She was... Um well, she had six more months to go, but because she was on her deathbed, they decided to let her go ahead and make her profession at that time. So, you know, I I wrote uh, Francis this little note in in the um, uh, notes of this particular part of the text that. Uh, for those of us who have the privilege of being members of Carmel, and of course we're not members because we chose to be. The Holy Spirit called us to this. I sometimes think we don't fully appreciate the gift that we have. What a grace it is to be members of this order, uh, to be exposed to all the great writings of the saints, to have the graces that go with participation in the order. Clearly, St. Teresa of the Andes understood, and those who um, were responsible for allowing her to take this profession, uh, understood the, the grace and the value and the benefit of 
of uh, her being able to do that in her last months, uh, last uh, weeks, really, uh, before she passed away. Uh, but but I hope, especially for those of us who are members and uh, those who may be contemplating um, participation in the secular order, that we appreciate the significance of what that means to our lives. And, you know, in one of her last letters, um, it was to her sister, written in February of 19, or excuse me, yes, 1920, <laughs> um, I keyed in on this one phrase that I thought really summed up um, the vocation. Of course, she she approaches this topic of the vocation in Carmel many times, and each time it seems like there's a new nuance. But I liked what she said, live in love, live in heaven, live in God. And I really, yeah. really like that. Yeah, that's a powerful message as well. And again, whenever we find a saint who's in her last hours, um, her writings or what it is that she may be communicating to those around her is very significant, and we need to listen very carefully. Well, and you know, in those last hours, she's going in and out of delirium, and and, sh- and she's having quite the suffering. You want to share about well, that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we read about Teresa of Avalon, the, the many years that she suffered with both physical illness and spiritual assaults from the devil and so forth. We read about St. John of the Cross, and we know the years of trial and tribulation that he went through. So some might ask, well, here's a young girl who died before 20 years of age. How much suffering could she have gone through? Well, as it turns out, uh, Francis points out, in these last few uh, hours, she's actually in and out of consciousness. But she is uh, saying to those who are around her that she feels as though she's been abandoned by God. Now, we have to understand... God works in his own time, and if he chooses, as he did in this case, he can work very quickly. But we have to grasp the significance of this. This is a young girl who now knows she's in her last hours. She's getting ready to pass over, and yet she feels abandonment by God. What worse time in your earthly existence to feel that sense of abandonment? So we should never question, challenge, or frankly uh, speculate too much on God's ways or timing Um, I'm quite confident that she went through the dark night uh, in its fullest extent, even if um, uh, rather quickly. Well, I sense that it's like the trial of faith that Therese had. And, of course, she had read the book, Story of a Soul, so she was acquainted with what Therese went through. And someone had said that in those last hours, to have that kind of trial there at the end, was a way that God purified their faith even more. Absolutely. You know, really triumphed their faith. What doesn't get lost, and we don't need to get into a theological discussion about this, but what does not get lost in that experience is hope. Hope is retained, and hope is the desire for what we know is that better state. We may feel that sense of abandonment, and certainly... Uh, for those who have spent any uh, significant amount of time in the contemplative uh, way of life or pursuing the interior life, uh, you may have experienced some of this sense of loss, abandonment, um, the feelings of, at times, even despair. Uh, we know now, because of the writings of the great saints, this is a way that the Lord purifies us, that yes. he, he purifies our love by removing all of the things that would distract us otherwise uh, from him. And so this is the perfect time to make those acts of faith faith, hope, and love. Absolutely. How can you be tried in, I mean, if you never put in the battle, how can you know, you know, be proven what kind of soldier you are? Yeah. I mean, we use the analogy so often of, uh, you know, working out and somebody who works out obviously experiences pain and resistance and uh, weakness and all of those things. And the consequence then, of course, is a strengthened uh, muscle or heart or what have you. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. The analogy is actually... Uh, 
uh, I think, very consistent. On April 12th, of course, at 7.15 p.m., she does finally fall asleep in the arms of our Lord. She's not yet 20 years old, and yet she left us such a rich uh, a contribution in terms of both her writings, but most especially, Francis, I think, in the life she led. That's what we're going to explore yes. now. In the life she led. Not just the life that we saw, uh, but later revealed through her diary, her letters, um, and other communication with, with close friends, the interior life that she lived. That was not readily evident, of course, uh, when she died. Much of this came out later. So, um, in fact, her sister Rebecca had retained her diary. So we know that the actual um, revelation of what her interior life was like was not known until much later. But despite that, Interestingly enough, and, and uh, Father Griffin, the author of this particular text, uh, points out uh, something I think that's very interesting. Um, there were a number of large crowds that gathered at her funeral. And even the sisters in the Carmel were somewhat taken aback by this because they didn't know. In fact, their suspicion was she was not particularly well known. We have to remember now she went to a Carmel that was some miles away from her home. And right? the poorest one. Yeah, the poorest one. So we can imagine that the people around may not have particularly um, um, you know, been well-informed about the Carmel or who was in it or why they were there or what their life was. And though she did come from some um, wealth and, and means, it doesn't appear as though that was what represented the crowd that gathered at her funeral. And there were a lot of priests there, too. Yes. So that was different. Yeah. Surprisingly, there were a lot of priests. There doesn't appear to have been a good explanation for why these people turned out. In fact, um, everybody, it is said in, in the text by Father Griffin, had the conviction that somehow a saint had just been buried. In so, fact, they even took their rosaries and they wanted them to touch their rosaries to the body of um, or her casket yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, have that special touch. Yeah, any, and, of, any of their religious objects, it seems, they wanted to get next to this this young girl. Again, we have to remind ourselves she's less than 20. Yeah, and, and um, they, don't, she, they don't want to go home either. And then the mail starts coming in. Isn't that amazing? That's That kind of reminds me of Teresa's story, the little flower. You know, all of a sudden you're getting uh, letter after letter saying that this person has interceded for you in the favors that were given to you. And sure enough, that's what happened with Teresa the Andes. Well, and that's a very interesting point because, um, uh, as I say, her death was very sudden. Um, her uh, biography, if you will, certainly not well known at this point. Nobody had written her biography. The circular letter, which the Carmels issue, do you know about the circular letter? Yes, it's in something? this book, actually. Yeah. Say something about that, because well, I think that's or one important. One of the books, it's in the testimonies, yeah. the testimonies to St. Teresa of the Andes. Oh, the circular. Well, the circular is what the, um, the monastery or the convent would put out. Any time one of their nuns would die, and it would give biographical information about the nun, um, and maybe highlight her virtues, her background, and you know um, her accomplishments, or 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 that. And and so they, uh, this is the only one I've ever seen printed in a book where you get the Uh, full deal. And so it is in this book, Testimonies to Saint Teresa of the Andes, so you can read it firsthand. I just think that's great. But that had not actually circulated. The circular had not circulated yet so right it had um, only gone um they had written it but they hadn't sent it out to all the convents yet because that takes a little bit of time so that would not have explained this uh, attraction
reaction that people had to her. We're going to get to the answer to that question in just a moment, but we want to sort of set the stage to help our listeners understand that this young girl, for some reason, uh, attracted an awful lot of people at the time of her death and soon thereafter, and many people uh, had already begun to discuss the possibility of her becoming a saint. So that's what we want to investigate. What made this young girl a saint, this well-to-do, athletic, very intelligent, vivacious, uh, energetic um, young girl who died at uh, uh, the tender age of 19? What made her a saint? What is it about her life? And, of course, we don't know that until we get into um, her own writings and uh, the testimonies about her from those who had become uh, familiar with her. And one of the places I want to start, Francis, is um, her letters to Father Colomb, um, which was, uh, he was one of her spiritual mentors, if you will, spiritual And, and a confessor. And a confessor in right. her younger years. And um, she wrote to him four letters. And so he didn't keep anybody else's letters to, to our knowledge, but he sure kept hers for some reason. But he finally did give them up so that we could benefit from them. Yeah. And so we have one, uh, a couple of them printed in this book of, of letters. Did yeah. you? Yeah, let's give that title as well so our listeners can uh, find the book if they're interested. It, it's simply The Letters of St. Teresa of the Andes. And again, it's by Hubertus Press. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, the Charism, uh, Teresa Charism yes. Press in Hubertus, but also available online. I yeah, think. and yeah. it's with the title St. Teresa of Jesus right. of the Andes. Right. And we keep abbreviating it, yeah. St. Teresa of the Andes. But, um, you know, as the Pope said at her canonization, she really is Teresa of Jesus of the Andes. You want to read that letter from Father Cole? Okay, well, this is an excerpt um, where uh, St. Teresa of the Andes is writing to her confessor. Um, she says, I also want to share with you, too, the fears that come to me in believing that a soul who gives herself over to prayer must put up with a lot of misunderstanding. Sometimes I get to the point where I think everything's an illusion, and then I really suffer. But it seems to me that these are temptations from the devil, because one who puts her trust in God and believes in him will not be confounded. Do you want me to go on? Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, we should point out, this was written just three months before her death. Okay. So... I'll share with you in all sincerity the state of my prayer, because I think I may be deluding myself. That's why I beg you to tell me what changes I ought to make. My prayer is almost always an intimate conversation with our Lord. I imagine that, like the Magdalene, I'm at his feet listening to him. Yeah, and of course that's what we read at the beginning. And I think that's important because it's very revealing as to her uh, sort of predisposition to her prayer life, how she saw her prayer life, uh, and, and how she prepared herself really by uh, putting herself at the foot of the cross, putting herself in, in the model of uh, Mary Magdalene and being there with our Lord. That was very important to her uh, spirituality. I, I want to just point out, too, though, uh, that she says later, because we're, we're going to build a case which some may find overwhelming about what a wonderful young lady this was, but she says about herself um, that she would oftentimes be driven to anger. We talked about this last week, Francis. And in fact, uh, she says that it, certain things really got her blood boiling. And I point that out because though we're going to build the case that she was a remarkable young lady and certainly had 
a, a wonderful, uh, intimate relationship with our Lord and a very deep interior life. She was a human being, right. as and all saints are. Yeah, she had fits of temper, and you know she was uh, a little irritated when people overlooked her. In fact, yeah. uh, she had a little resentment issue going on yeah. there with a piece of candy, I think. Yeah, and, and she also didn't like to be interrupted. When she was speaking, she says, if I was speaking about the Lord and somebody interrupted me, oh, yeah. in fact, her brother said uh, and told this story about how she could give you a stare or cut you off very quickly if you should interrupt her when she was talking to the Lord. Yeah, so, but this makes her more approachable, doesn't it? It does, actually. It absolutely does. We have to see the humanity, I think, in our saints in order for us to be able to use them as models. Yeah, here she is, an athlete, a musician, and she has faults. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, one last quick point before our break. Um, we also want to caution against uh, the perception that some might gain because of her youth, that this was just some sort of a romantic young girl, and all these writings are simply a manifestation of a romanticism. Father Griffin points out uh, her life, though very beautiful, uh, a dream of a teenage girl in many ways. Was it just a childish emotion, or was her life grounded and filled with the substance of true holiness? Yes, he says, of course. It was a, a genuine, a true Christian uh, life and a genuine yeah, uh, what, intimacy with our Lord. And one who knew her faults and demonstrated courage in uh, trying to overcome her weaknesses. Right. Well, we're going to pick up on this theme of uh, Teresa of the Andes, Teresa of Jesus of the Andes, when we come back from the break. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I want to remind our listeners that um, if you'd like to participate in our conversation, many of you may be familiar with uh, Teresa of Jesus of the Andes, or uh, this might be your first introduction, and it may lead to some questions. And if you'd like to uh, participate with Francis and I in the conversation, feel free to give us a call at one 866 333 6279. Again, that's 1 866 6279. And you can also email us at conversations at yahoo.com with a capital C, though, for Carmelite. conversations at yahoo.com. We'd love to hear from you. Well, Francis, let's pick up on this idea of her interior life manifested largely through the letters and her diary and her personal uh, contact with so many around her who later gave testimonies. Um, And I want to draw on this one theme uh, that Father Griffin, the author of the book we're working from, talks about. And he says everything in her life was the fruit of her asceticism and prayer. Okay, you got to define that word because... That prayer? asceticism. Prayer is when we get on our knees. <laughs> no, the longer the one. <laughs> asceticism is actually from the Greek word, which means exercise or practice. And we could do a program on asceticism, but for benefit of our listening audience, we don't want to lose the, the train of thought on uh, uh, Teresa of the Andes. Asceticism are those things that we ourselves can do. John would refer to them as the active component of both um, uh, the. the um, uh, active night of sense and the active night of spirit where we can practice uh, detachment where we can practice um, giving things up fasting of course is a perfect example denying our will that's a big one denying our will Teresa uh, Therese rather Lazoo did a uh, you know a remarkable job of sharing with us the little things she's the saint of the little things and it was always the little things that she said uh, were most demanding quite frankly uh, for overcoming our will. So, um, you know, keeping our, our voice, uh, uh, our desire to respond to somebody's uh, comment, perhaps, um, and, and checking our voice, uh, practicing silence, all of the things that we can do that help us to dwell in the interior and listen to that still, small voice of the Lord uh, are the practices of asceticism right. and, of course, prayer. So everything in her life is a fruit of those two things. Everything everything that led to her deep interior life, absolutely. And this is true for all saints, right? Asceticism and prayer. We find that theme. You find very few people who've achieved great levels of sainthood where there isn't this underlying practice of asceticism and prayer. Right. And because of that, um, she's also uh, referred to as a mystic now. Since you're defining words, <laughs> tell us, what's a mystic? Well, something, unfortunately, that many people are... are um, sort of uh, taken aback by the idea of mystical or mysticism. You know, we, we, we shy away from that. Of course, John and Teresa of Avila, uh, so many of our great saints uh, um, 
Catherine of Siena, were very great mystics. What does that mean? They had mystical uh, experiences, certainly, uh, but they lived the mystery. And what is the mystery? Mystery, also from the Greek, is a gift. And what do we do with gifts? We unwrap them. But we can't unwrap the gift that God wants to give us in mystery if we don't listen, if we don't focus, if we don't turn to that interior, if we don't practice the asceticism uh, that allows us to, to drown out the noise of the world and hear that inner voice. But I want to start with um, an um, a individual that Father Griffin points out uh, who lived what he calls an everyday mysticism, and that would be Pope John the Twenty Third, somebody we're all familiar with. He initiated the Second Vatican Council, uh, and John the Twenty Third wrote a wonderful uh, um, book called uh, "Journal of a Soul," his own experience, of course, which he began as a very young person and continued on through his life wherein he reflects the little things that he did every day to put himself in tune with the Lord, how he would focus on praying his rosary, how he would chastise himself for um, not uh, retaining his focus at times in praying his rosary, how he would check his temper, how he would uh, try to uh, refrain from uh, any emotional outburst, uh, all of the little things he did throughout the course of the day are really the same practice of asceticism, and of course, in his case, deep, deep prayer, that made him what uh, Father Griffin refers to as an everyday mystic. And of course, Teresa of Avila is the example he uses for um, the mystic in the, in the uh, supernatural uh, realm. The supernatural sense of it, that we understand uh, that she had ecstasies. We understand that she had experiences of levitation. We know... Uh, that she felt the presence of the Lord in a very meaningful way. We know that she visited the spiritual side of uh, uh, of uh, existence. All right. And, so how would we describe St. Teresa of the Andes? Would she be an everyday mystic, or would she be one of these supernatural mystics? She is an ideal combination of both. Because, Good answer. <laughs> yeah. She, and I think that's why Father Griffin used that example. He He really draws out this idea that she lived in everyday mysticism, but there were unmistakable moments in her life life, and she writes about these, where, for example, after her first communion, she knew that the Lord was speaking to her. She right. had that sense. And if you've had this experience, and I know many of our listeners have, where uh, the Lord might use another person. He may use a book. He may use uh, um, you know, something you hear on, on uh, Christian broadcasting, like uh, Radio Maria. Carmelite Conversations. Yeah, <laughs> that, that sense of message, which you know in your heart is unmistakable. It's more... Uh, compelling, it is more, you're more confident in that message when it comes than you would be if somebody were standing in front of you speaking something to you. And when they are supernatural events, um, maybe it's locutions or visions, whatnot, um, the effects, though, are more humility, uh, more self-knowledge, a greater desire to sacrifice yourself for the good of the church and for the salvation of souls, for priests. And, of course, we know St. Teresa of Andes had that. Yeah, and, in fact, you, you bring up a very good point. We wouldn't go away from that sort of experience with a sense of pride or, uh, uh, you know, privilege or that I was special in some way because this had happened. In fact, you'd feel more humble because of it. In fact, she calls herself a criminal nothingness. Yeah. I'm like, wow, criminal nothingness. Wow, what adjectives. Yeah. John Paul picked up on this idea, actually, when he um, uh, spoke at her uh, beatification, the beatification homily. And I just want to say uh, briefly w- some of what he brought out. In her brief 
autobiographical writings, he's, of course, referring to her letters and to her diary, she was left, I'm sorry, she has left the witness of a simple and attainable holiness. That's a very important phrase, I think, for all of us. Simple and attainable, centered on the core of the gospel. Love, suffer, pray, and serve. Opportunities we all have, right? That's it. Every day we have those four opportunities. I can't imagine a day in our life where we don't experience the opportunity uh, to love, to suffer, unfortunately, but but nonetheless uh, uh, in a cheerful way to pray, of course, and to serve. Uh, each of us are presented with those four uh, opportunities every day. The difference in Teresa of Jesus of the Andes, she lived them in a very devout and in a very deliberate way. In fact, there's another wonderful quote in here, Francis, um, that reminded me of St. Teresa of Avila. Um, she, um, she's referred to as having a tenacious will in the pursuit of holiness. One of the folks, uh, Father uh, Valentin Maka, who knew her, of course, and she had some dialogue with him. And he, he did the summary, actually, of her... Um of all the information about her for the canonical process. Right. So he is uh, the one who's referring to her. And uh, when we think of Teresa of Avila, we're thinking of determined determination. And so this tenacious will in Teresa of the Andes is very much, you know, in the spirit of the mother, the madre. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly what I thought of was St. Teresa, um, Teresa of Jesus's uh, comment that you had to have a determined determination. And the vice postulator for her cause and an, and a bio- biographer of her um, was Father Marino Puroy, P-U-R-R-O-Y. Um, he was discussed Carmelite, and he said this about her writings, that they have awakened an extraordinary hunger and thirst for God. He suggests that this is the outstanding mission of this young Carmelite to a world taken up with secularism and materialism and forgetful of spiritual values. So he says that she's going to help us wake up to the hunger and thirst that we have for God. Yeah, and she is actually the patron um, uh, of two very important categories, I think. Uh, First is the patron of the young. Uh, Of course, she died at a very young age. Uh, She lived a very full life as a young person. Uh, As we said before, very vibrant, very active young uh, woman. And um, as a consequence of that, I think uh, she is, in a very special way, a wonderful patron for our young people, something that is so important for us today. John Paul, again, in her beatification, uh, pointed that out. I won't read the, the, the quote, but uh, or the whole quote, but he says, at the beginning, we heard a brief a biographical profile of Sister Teresa of the Andes, a young Chilean girl, symbol of the faith and goodness of this people, a, dista- a discalced Carmelite, captivated by the heavenly kingdom in the springtime of her life, the first fruits of the holiness of the Teresian Carmelites, in Latin America. And in that uh, same uh, uh, series of comments, he advocates that uh, that is why this new blessed is a model of the gospel life for the young people. And what, what an important uh, message, I think, for us today, you know, where our young people are challenged, I think, in, in so many ways, certainly far more, Francis, than we were when we were younger, uh, having to uh, struggle with retaining our faith. And her basic message is this, that only in God can one find happiness. God alone is infinite 
joy. In fact, that's where we get the title of the book that we've been using, God, the Joy of My Life, comes from this message about God alone is our infinite joy. Yeah. She she um, is attributed, as so many great saints are, with a divine attribute. You know, we've talked about St. Francis of Assisi, of course, many times, and his um, his love for the poor. Uh, St. John of the Cross, the mystical doctor. I think for St. Teresa of Jesus of the Andes, you've just pointed it out, her divine attribute is joy. Yes. And what an important message for our time, for our youth. And I just want to cover quickly the other thing that John Paul II um, uh, cited her as a patron of is the new evangelization. So important also for our era. We could spend a lot of time talking about the new evangelization, but suffice to say, um, the new evangelization, at least in part, is the re-evangelization of the church, of those who've fallen away, of those who are struggling with their faith, of the great um, uh, capitals of Catholicism in in, uh, the early uh, 18th and 19th century, uh, which today are struggling to retain that faith. Uh, the new evangelization is part of that movement of the church, and she is a patron of that. Absolutely. So um, now, where sh- where should we turn? Should we talk about um, some of those testimonies about her? I do. I want to talk about the testimonies on um, this idea of her um, divine attribute of joy. Okay, that's where I was thinking we were leading. So I'm, I'm reading from this text, um, Testimonies to St. Teresa of the Andes, and one of her quotes is, Oh, if I could but make you feel the happiness that is felt when one has no other occupation in life than loving and contemplating, then the soul engulfed in the ocean of the divinity will lose sight of the shores of this world, which is the homeland of sorrow and wickedness. And then she goes on, how can I tell you of the happiness I feel in having given myself to him, referring to Jesus? It's no longer any common kind of happiness that I experience. It's heaven that I possess. I've begun that task of loving and praising, which will perform in eternity. Here in Carmel, only God exists. We live submerged in him, in this divine atmosphere of peace and love. And then she goes on, to live always being so happy. God is infinite joy. You know, Francis, we live in a society that has uh, more material wealth, comfort, gadgets, if you will, technological advances than has ever been known in the history of man. And yet we also have uh, more sadness and despair, despondency. I um, have the uh, the privilege of being able to work in... Um, information technology in the healthcare space. And uh, one of the areas that we've been working in most recently is trying to find ways to use technology to address what has become a very uh, unfortunate, pervasive problem in our society, and that is an increase in suicide rates, uh, most especially in our, uh, among our military. And I bring that out only to emphasize this, that despite all of the advances in technology, all of the proliferation of forms of entertainment, movies and music and the Internet and uh, the, the uh, proliferation of fitness facilities for our bodies and so forth, despite all of that, uh, we are suffering in this era from a great deal of despair, 
despondency, uh, depression, just genuine sadness. So many of our people, and I would I would encourage our listeners, if you yourself or you know uh, somebody who is in this perpetual state of despair and sadness, uh, I would encourage you to turn to Teresa of the Andes as a patron for that person, for yourself if it's necessary. Look to this young Chilean saint um, as a patron for this. You know, she says... Uh, a couple of things that I think are so very important. Uh, first, and, and John Paul, the second pointed this out as well, Mary is the cause of our joy. The overshadowing and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is represented at the moment uh, of Mary's uh, um, uh, being told uh, of the uh, birth that she's uh, her receiving Christ and eventually that she will be giving birth is that same experience that we must each go through in accepting the Holy Spirit as our guide, as our counselor, as our strength. And we know that joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And Teresa of the Andes gives us some very uh, unmistakable guidance in this regard. This comes right out of her own writings. Uh, first of all, uh, joy is found in constant prayer, in constant conversation with the Lord. Prayer without ceasing, she would say. But secondly, and probably as important, rejoicing in the Lord. Taking the time to rejoice in the Lord. Taking the time to see the beauty in nature, to see the beauty in our families, to see the beauty of so much that's around us. All of these things I mentioned, um, you know, as forms of entertainment, can also represent beauty. And lastly is acquiring uh, the gift of gratitude, giving thanks, taking the time to turn back to the Lord and thank him for all the blessings he showered us upon. She says in her writings, in doing this, the, the Holy Apostle tells us, do these three things, rejoice in the Lord, pray without ceasing, give thanks unremittingly, and you will have joy, you will have real joy. And, you know, this joy is a nuance of, of this love, this happiness. It is a sense of um, the way it was described in the book here was it's because of the presence of God. And so, therefore, you can have joy even in suffering because even in the midst of suffering, you can still have God very present. And because he is there, the joy oversees and uh, overtakes that suffering or helps you to bear it strongly, courageously. But but joy um, is lasting. It, happiness is passing. Yeah. She, she, um, again, we have to keep pointing out this was a 19 year old girl for, um, for all of the wisdom that she has to share with us. Uh, but I really want to stress this point. Uh, Father, um, Griffin again talks about how frequently the humanistic and existential promises of what we today call self-actualization, fulfillment, and happiness are so often stressed in modern literature and through these forms of entertainment. What he's saying is we seek joy not just in material things, not just in the comforts of the world, but we we think that by getting everything in alignment, by sort of getting our ducks in a row in the world, right, that we will experience joy. And he says, no, you can experience pleasure in that way. You can experience gratification in that way. He doesn't diminish that. But that's not joy. Joy can only come from within us. It's this deep abiding presence of the Lord within us. Nothing that we can fix on the outside, nothing that we can arrange on the outside, not putting all our ducks in a row, uh, is ever going to lead us to 
true joy. Joy must come from within. It must well up from the outside and not be a consequence of having aligned everything on the exterior in a way that we think we want it, in a way that we think we'll be happy. So let's remember those three things, to pray without ceasing, to rejoice in the Lord, and to give thanks. And we will build up this joy, this love of the Lord. We will start to recognize his presence within, and then our our hope and our faith and our love will be increasing, and we will find ourselves in more joy. And you know, there's another thing I would stress beyond the obvious, which she stresses throughout her life and is the model of it, and that is this constant uh, life of prayer. But we should turn to Scripture. I would encourage anybody who's wrestling with uh, sadness, with despair, with uh, uh, real tragedy perhaps in their life, that you look for the joy in Scripture. Go and find the verses in Scripture. And we've, we've selected just a couple I think would be important for us. I have told you all these things, Christ says, that your joy may be full. That's John fifteen eleven. And then rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Corinthians 5.16 And finally, be of good cheer. Though it is true in this world you will have many troubles, always remember, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 You know, I want to take a moment, we don't do this very often, Francis, but I want to take a moment to advocate uh, for our listeners that they might consider picking up a book that I've just uh, recently uh, got myself, and I'm just about through it. I'll probably finish it this evening. It's called Kisses from Katie, and it's a story about a young girl who gives up uh, her life uh, to move to Uganda and work with um, the poorest of the poor in that country. And I want to stress that what's significant about it isn't the joy that she, Katie Davis, herself finds in that life, though that's compelling enough. Um, nor is it the overcoming of the obstacles and helping these these uh, poor people, these young people uh, that she becomes uh, exposed to or comes in contact with. But it's the joy in them, in these young children, despite the terrible uh, circumstances that many of them live with. And I don't want to go through the details. Uh, I would encourage you to read the book, but, but you can imagine living in abject poverty with uh, diseases and and uh, uh, it's a war-torn country in some regions. This is a very difficult um, a place to live in many cases, although at the same time a very beautiful country. And in this story, Kisses from Katie, she talks about the joy in these young faces, in the, in the mothers of these children, uh, despite all of the difficulties around them. Their faith in God, because they are a Christian people in many cases, and their uh, uh, literal joy... Uh, over the smallest and simplest things in life. And I think we can learn something great from that. And Teresa the Andes, she tells us that we can all experience this endless divine love and joy in your own heart um, if they seek it. So you've got to seek it. And But she goes on to, to inform us that this joy, this pearl of great price, can only be purchased by giving God the throne of our hearts. All right, so you have to surrender your hearts. Yeah, and that's a difficult thing for us to do. I mean, again, that's this interior life that we talk about. So how do you get it? You ask for it. She says, if you want it, ask and it shall be given. Yeah, in prayer, of course, constant prayer, we ask for, you know, again, we we think that the Lord wants to play games with us, and the truth is, he doesn't. He wants to be very open I think he wants to play hide and seek, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe he does. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Um, 
I want uh, I want to take a, a moment also to encourage our listeners. Uh, one other reference for your reading that I think is very important. Pope Paul VI authored um, a um, a letter called "On Christian Joy." It's rather lengthy and a little deep, but I, I think it really gets to the heart of what we are called to. Uh, in our walk with the Lord, and that is sheer joy. Uh, It seems to us, I'll read just briefly from it, it seems to us, in fact, that the present world crisis, now mind you, he's writing in the early 60s, which is marked by a great confusion among many young people, partly betrays a senile and definitely out-of-date aspect of a commercial, hedonistic, materialistic civilization which is still trying to present itself as a gateway to the future. And he goes on to tell us how we can recapture the joy of our experience with the Lord. Well, I want to encourage you to do that uh, this evening by um, learning more about St. Teresa of the Andes, St. Teresa of Jesus of the Andes. Learn about her, get, get a hold of some of her writings, and understand what it is that she has to teach our modern generation about uh, joy in the Lord. Francis, would you close us out in prayer, please? I think it's important to pray um, the prayer of intercession. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God of mercy, joy of the saints, you set the young heart of St. Teresa of the Andes ablaze with the fire of virginal love for Christ and for his church, and even in suffering made her a cheerful witness to charity. Through her intercession, Fill us with the delights of your spirit so that we may proclaim by word and deed the joyful message of your love to the world. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, remind you, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be with you again next week. Until then, God bless. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations 